Welcome to Skim This. As the war in Ukraine heads into its fourth week, tensions are high with no sign of de-escalation on the horizon. The third week of the war brought more bombs and destruction and more deaths and despair. Russia's bombardment of Kyiv picked up with near constant shelling and airstrikes of residential buildings. We'll start this week by talking to a reporter inside the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. We've got an inside look at the emotions on the ground, the latest on U.S. involvement, and where the war could go from here. And with Russian President Vladimir Putin playing mind games on his own turf, we'll take a look at the information iron curtain in Russia. We've also got the breakdown on everything inflation and what the Fed raising interest rates means for you. And we'll wrap things up by telling you about a growing sport speeding its way to the American market, thanks to a glamorous, gritty, and suspenseful reality show. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. We're starting this week with an update on the ground in Ukraine. I'm in Kyiv, the capital city of Ukraine. So effectively, I am in Eastern Europe, but I have a lot of Russia very close by. That's Jane Ferguson, a correspondent for PBS NewsHour and a contributor to The New Yorker. She spoke to us from her hotel room in Kyiv, where Ukrainian forces have managed to hold off Russia's military. It's kind of bizarre walking around the reality of a city where you can hear the booms on the outskirts of the city. You can hear the constant artillery barrage coming from the Russians. And at the same time, you can still see people stopping at the traffic lights or, you know, the odd person out walking their dog. So there's always these strange little signs of normalcy, a supermarket that might be open, but there might be a long line of people and they're holding empty water bottles. So it's a very strange kind of normal. I had these expectations, perhaps unrealistic expectations, about how close I could get to the fighting to capture it on camera. Normally, for for a lot of war reporters, we tend to visit front lines, we tend to visit those who are displaced, and we tend to visit field hospitals. It's been much more complex since I got here. As you may have guessed, Ferguson is no stranger to covering international conflicts. And while being a war correspondent is an inherently dangerous job, she says there are certain elements of this war that make it even more challenging. Just this week, three journalists were killed. An American filmmaker who was shooting for time, and a few days later, a Fox News cameraman and a Ukrainian reporter working with him. It's incredibly difficult to try to strategize for these sorts of dangers because they're very new to a lot of reporters living in a post-9-11 world. We've covered a lot of combat, the battles against ISIS in Iraq and in Syria, you know, obviously the war in Iraq, Afghanistan. What's going on here, though, is, is a very different heavy weaponry conventional warfare, whereby there's no really clear front line. The Russians are using artillery fire, and it's believed to have been artillery fire that killed the Fox News camera person and field producer. Artillery fire doesn't really care about where you are, which side of a sandbank you're on. So when I talk to my colleagues about where we should go and what we should do, 
It's very difficult to look at a map and decide on what we're going to do, which we could have done in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Here, it's much more tough. So we're having a lot of conversations. Journalists talk to each other all the time. Technically, we compete, but we are still a bit of a tribe. So we check in with one another and we say, what's the situation like in that village or how's that road? That's really the kind of intel that helps keep people safe. In the past week, Russia has stepped up its attacks on civilians. On Wednesday, Russia bombed a theater in the city of Mariupol, where hundreds had taken shelter from the fighting. And since the war began three weeks ago, the UN says more than 700 civilians have been killed, and people estimate that the real number is much higher. Ferguson said Ukrainians are trying to help each other in every way that they can. I think a lot of this country, those who aren't in the direct line of fire, feel desperately sad and angry at what they're having to see on their television screens every night. So there is a real sense of growing moral outrage about that. There's also a sense of getting involved, of mobilizing, whether or not people are joining the military, taking up weapons or they're organizing soup kitchens, donating coats to the newly homeless who've had their homes bombed out. The other thing I've noticed is at every single spot where people are to be evacuated, I have always seen Ukrainian volunteers, men and women, with hot meals, with tents that have you know, basic medical help for people. Local communities, people from just a local apartment block, will come down with a tray of sandwiches for people. It's not like anything I've ever seen before. It's been 22 days since Putin launched the invasion of Ukraine. And as Russia has continued to escalate its attacks, this war has also moved closer to Europe's doorstep. Over the weekend, a Russian attack near the Polish border killed 35 and injured at least 134 people. And this week, three European prime ministers actually went into Ukraine to show their support. And they're not the only ones who are traveling. Next week, President Biden is scheduled to meet with NATO leaders in Brussels, and maybe even impose more sanctions on Russia. But Ukraine's call for help that isn't in the form of sanctions is growing louder. On Wednesday, Ukrainian President Zelensky addressed Congress via video call and kind of put President Biden on the spot when he called on the U.S. to do more to help in this conflict. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. President Biden responded by agreeing to send $800 million worth of military aid to Ukraine and notably called Russian President Vladimir Putin a war criminal. But so far, the White House has refused to comply with one of Zelensky's key requests, helping to create a no-fly zone above Ukraine, which is basically the equivalent of banning Russian planes from flying over the country and shooting them down if they did. You know, a, a cruel irony of this war and a cruel irony for the Ukrainians is, to a certain extent, in some ways, they are the victims of their own success here, because right now they're holding off the Russians. And from the perspective of the White House, most likely, for as long as the Ukrainians are able to hold off the Russians from the major cities like Kyiv, then is it worth absolutely going all in for a hot war, you know, the, if that's what we're talking about, the no-fly zone being, is it worth doing that at this stage because the Ukrainians have surprised the world by holding off the Russian army? So I think that right now, 
there is this perspective from the White House of, you know, the Russians are getting beaten. Why interrupt that at this point? But as international politicians continue to work on how to get Russia to back down, Ferguson says we need to remember how this war has already fundamentally changed Europe. It's so hard whenever you're reporting a war how to get people to conceptualize scale. You know, we hear millions of people displaced, millions of people have led the country. But if we if we think about it, if you wanted to compare it to other wars, and I've covered so many wars that have caused displacement of people, having three million people flee the country in 20 days is absolutely unprecedented. In Syria, you had millions fleeing the country, but it took years for, for that many Syrians to decide to finally leave. It's like nothing anybody has seen before. When we step back and think about it from a geopolitical perspective, the next steps or, the, or how this could escalate is almost limitless. I've covered so many wars around the world where there's a regional impact and there is a global impact, but nothing on this scale. This is Russia invading Europe. This is a, a breakdown of a world order, or at least an unwritten set of rules around the world, and many written rules, of course, as well. The implications are truly global, and not global in a deeply indirect way, you know, seven degrees removed, but immediately immediately impacting the world. So on the one hand, you know, we're running around trying to film in hospitals and talk to local people and make this about the human beings on the ground here. But there is a lot to talk about as well on a geopolitical scale. We've spent the past few weeks on this show thinking about how this war is affecting Ukrainians. But what about the view from Russia? If you ask someone in Russia what was going on in Ukraine, what would they say? We've all heard the stories of, you know, Ukrainians calling their relatives in Russia saying, we're being bombed. And the Russians saying, well, no, actually, you're bombing us and it's not a war. That's Alessandra Stanley. She's the co-editor of the weekly newsletter Airmail, and she used to be the Moscow bureau chief for The New York Times back in the 90s. Stanley told us, Russia's historically been pretty cagey with information, and that's always had a negative effect on Russian people. There's always been a certain amount of restriction. Even after communism fell, there were some independent outlets, but very quickly, you know, news organizations became bought up by oligarchs, some friendly to the government and some unfriendly. And the unfriendly ones, when Putin came to power, had to leave. This is familiar to Russians. And I think even young Russians have slowly gotten used to having more and more restrictions on, on what they can do and read and think. As a quick snapshot, according to the nonprofit Freedom House, in 2015, Russia ranked 180 out of 199 countries for press freedom. Currently, the top three TV networks in Russia are either overtly state-run or owned by companies that have close ties to the Kremlin. The most read newspapers are also very pro-government, and journalists who've been critical of the Kremlin have been threatened and arrested. Journalists critical of the government have also been killed during the Putin era, though many of those cases are still unsolved. Since the war with Ukraine began, 
Putin has stepped up his control over the press, and he's trying to use his chokehold on information flow to convince Russians that the military is trying to liberate Ukrainians from tyranny and neo-Nazis. Those are narratives that ring really false to us in the West, but for Russians, it's harder to understand what's true and what's not, mainly because they just have way less access to outside information. Earlier this month, BBC, CNN, and other international news outlets have halted their reporting operations in Russia. They did that after Putin passed a new law saying it's a crime for a journalist to contradict the Kremlin. Even under the Soviet times, and the worst of Soviet times, even under Stalin, there were still New York Times correspondents in Moscow. So this is unprecedented even for for Russia to just say everybody out. And the degree to which they've gone after people and the fact that so many people have really run for their lives is unprecedented. And besides cracking down on foreign press, Putin is also going after another vital source of information social media. As the clock struck midnight on Monday, Putin shut down Instagram. And according to the head of Instagram, that's a big problem, considering 80% of people in Russia followed accounts from outside of the country. Still, some Russians have been able to see past the information iron curtain that Putin has been putting up. This week, you may have seen that a Russian TV editor marched on set and protested the war on live TV telling Russians they were being lied to. For her to do this, you know, it's like as if, I don't know, Rachel Ray or Connie Chung ran into CBS News to protest the Iraq war. People will talk about it. They'll find they know about it. Even if they didn't see it, they'll say they saw it, you know, because that was just, you couldn't script that. So that was a remarkable thing. We should note, after that appearance, that journalist was arrested and could face fines or jail time. While restricting information is a major part of Putin's strategy and a way to keep his people on his side, Stanley believes that dynamic won't last forever. And when you consider that the Russian ruble is already collapsing and everyday people are feeling the pressure of sanctions, more Russians will start to ask questions. And it could get harder for Putin to continue to lie about what's going on. The problem is for him is it's just not that effective for very long. There's too many ways to get around. And, you know, social media, every day there's a new app that's encrypted. So word will spread, even if it's not necessarily on, you know, a network television station. The protests, which I think would get bigger, I think the people's, you know, when people get panicked about what's happening to their country, I don't see a mass revolution in the streets, but I see a kind of discontent that can't be contained. Okay, that was a lot. Let's turn our attention to some other issues going on here at home, including inflation. You don't need us to remind you that prices are still high for everything from food to gas to clothing. But this week, the Federal Reserve, which is the group that sets monetary policy for the U.S., took a major step in the fight against inflation. They announced they're raising interest rates 0.25%. If you're like, major step and 0.25% sound like total opposites, you're not alone. 
but we're going to break down why this small step for the Fed is actually a big move for the economy. With some help from Gene Young, a reporter from Market News International who covers the Fed and the economy. We talked to Gene on Wednesday, right when the Fed was meeting. So Gene, I want to start by asking you about the Fed's big meeting today. Can you remind us what's on the agenda? Sure. Um, This is the March FOMC meeting for the Fed. It's going to be a very historic meeting today because the Fed is looking to finally raise its benchmark interest rate. After two years, it is looking to lift rates by just a modest quarter point. But it is also going to signal to investors that the rates will rise further this year. And that is because inflation is near 8%. It's the highest in 40 years or so, and it's rising. At the same time, unemployment is at 3.8%, and it's still falling. So the economy is looking really, really healthy. And against that background, the Fed is looking to tighten monetary policy. And why did they keep interest rates at zero for so long? Yeah, that's a really good question. Rates have stayed near zero for the past two years to help the economy recover from the pandemic. It was lowered to zero about two years ago in March 2020. At that point, markets were very turbulent and nobody knew what was going to happen with the pandemic. We had massive shutdowns all around the country. So rates were brought to zero to lower borrowing costs to the lowest possible level to help the economy recover. At the same time, Congress passed a couple of aid packages for the economy. People have a lot of money in their pockets because of these stimulus packages that we've seen. And the job market is really strong. There's 11 million job openings out there and not nearly enough people to fill those jobs. So employers are raising wages. They keep hiring. So the Fed has determined that we now have a strong enough economy to support higher interest rates. How do raising interest rates in this one meeting by this one group of people, how does that actually affect me or people in our audience? Basically, it makes it more expensive for people to buy their houses. It makes it more expensive for people to buy cars. Credit card rates could go up, making it more expensive to buy on credit. It also makes it more expensive for businesses to borrow money to expand their businesses. So the result is a general pullback in spending, and that will slow inflation on the one hand, but could also slow the economy on the other hand. At this point, I think the Fed is hoping to bring demand and supply back in sync because over the course of the pandemic, we've had a huge shift of spending toward goods rather than services like travel and staying in hotels, leisure and hospitality. People haven't been doing that as much. They have been buying a lot of couches and cars and things like that. So because there's been such an imbalance People haven't been able to get the goods that they want at the time that they want it. And that imbalance has caused prices to be really high. And are there risks associated with raising interest rates too high? Definitely. If you raise interest rates too high, you threaten to choke off the growth that we've seen for the economy. You could raise borrowing costs for firms, for businesses, even for people on their credit cards to such a level that people no longer want to buy things on their credit cards. Businesses no longer want to invest in infrastructure, in new factories, and the economy kind of grinds to a halt. So that's the major risk that we would see a recession. 
How has the war in Ukraine complicated things here? And is that something the Fed is going to be weighing? Russia's war against Ukraine has raised the prices of oil, gas, wheat, a bunch of other commodities around the world. Because those prices are rising even further than the Fed had anticipated, it ends up putting the Fed a bit further behind the curve. Also, the Fed would prefer not to be raising interest rates into this uncertain environment. Now, when you go to put gas in your car at the pump, you're paying on average $4.30 nationwide. And that is much higher than we're used to. I think economists are feeling good that consumers have enough of a savings cushion built up over the course of the pandemic to weather those high gas prices for now. But we don't know how long they could persist and how it will start to affect the economy. After the Fed makes this announcement, you know, what are you going to be looking out for in the next few weeks or months as it relates to consumer spending and whether people are or aren't spending money? I think the Fed will look to see how the economy is taking the higher interest rates. Actually, in anticipation of these interest rates, we've already seen mortgage rates go up. They've already risen to, I think, around 3.85% from an all-time low of 2.65% last year. So we've already seen a sizable adjustment on that. We should see further adjustments. It really depends on what the Fed says about how aggressive they will be with the rate hikes and how the economy will react. Jean, thank you so much. Sure. While COVID case numbers here in the U.S. are steadily declining and mask mandates around the country are being lifted, all eyes are on China as they experience their largest COVID outbreak since the start of the pandemic. And it turns out a sneaky new variant is to blame. We're talking about something called stealth Omicron, which sounds ominous, but is this really something to worry about? We'll break down what we know so far in 60 seconds. More than 50 million people in China can no longer go out to eat, catch a movie, or even ride on public transportation as sweeping new lockdowns go into effect. The reason is that COVID cases are going up across China, all thanks to that stealth variant of Omicron. It got that nickname because this latest strain has genetic mutations that could make it harder to tell apart from the Delta variant, while the OG version of Omicron was easier to distinguish. So what do we know about Omicron's evil twin? So far, it appears to be more contagious, but isn't more severe than the original Omicron variant. Which is, I guess, some good news. But it's not good news for supply chains. Because some major companies have suppliers in places that are going into lockdown, including Volkswagen, Toyota, and Apple, who've had to suspend production. We'll also note this stealth variant has made its way past these lockdowns and into Europe, where countries including the UK and Germany are seeing pretty major upticks in cases. While here in the US, even as lawmakers debate scaling back virus-related mandates, COVID is far from over. And some pretty high-profile people have tested positive this week, including former President Barack Obama and second gentleman Doug Emhoff. Right now, they say they have mild symptoms and that they're doing okay. So does all this mean that it's going to be stealth COVID spring here in the U.S.? 
Considering around 25% of new COVID infections are now from this variant, all signs point to yes. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... The biannual ritual of changing our clocks could become a thing of the past if senators get their way. The Senate unanimously passed a bill that would make daylight savings time permanent. You heard that right. Apparently, our senators had a hard time adjusting to losing sleep this week, too. The Sunshine Protection Act passed with zero opposition in the Senate. It proposes keeping the U.S. on daylight savings time all year. That means darker mornings and brighter evenings. And even though the Senate voted this week on the issue, daylight savings has been controversial in the U.S. for years. Since as far back as 1918, Americans have tweaked their clocks twice a year in a failed attempt to save some energy. And studies show that when our clocks change, the risk of heart attacks, stroke, and depression increases. So now the Senate is saying enough is enough. But it turns out getting rid of daylight savings isn't so simple. That's because even though the Senate voted to keep us in daylight savings time year-round, sleep experts say we really should be using standard time with early sunrise and early sunset. Apparently, standard time aligns better with our natural sleep cycles and would actually let us sleep better. Still, no matter what side of this hot debate you fall on, if this bill passes the House and gets signed by President Biden, you can look forward to never changing your clocks again starting in November 2023. Okay, next headline. Some of your most used apps are about to get pricier. Uber is adding a temporary surcharge of 45 cents or 55 cents per ride. That's right. In response to rising gas prices, Uber and its food delivery service Uber Eats are charging extra per ride or delivery. The rideshare giant says they're trying to help keep their drivers on the road, despite fuel costs soaring. And this week, competitor app Lyft announced it's also planning to raise prices. But apparently, these price hikes won't be enough. Drivers say this surcharge falls woefully short and won't do much to help them at the pump. So even though your Uber bill might be higher, you might have a harder time finding a driver at all. Another app that could get more expensive is Netflix. Specifically, if you've been using your friend's, girlfriend's, cousin's Netflix account, we've got some bad news. The streaming service is trying to crack down on password sharing because, quick reminder, apparently it violates their policy to share your password outside of your household. Not that we've ever done that before. Now, Netflix is going to make primary account holders pay extra for additional non-household users. But don't start panicking just yet. This pilot program is only rolling out in Chile, Costa Rica, and Peru. So you're probably safe to keep using that guy from college's account a little while longer. And our final headline. Tuesday was equal pay day. And to mark the occasion, the White House proposed new regulation to help close the gender pay gap for federal employees. Also on equal pay day, Vice President Kamala Harris led a virtual summit featuring CEOs, cabinet members, and some special guests. Current and former players from the U.S. women's national soccer team, 
shortly after their off-the-field legal victory against U.S. soccer over the issue of equal pay. We actually went down to the White House on Tuesday to see the panel, where the U.S. women's national team told us, even though this lawsuit just got settled, the players have been fighting for equal treatment for a long time. Current forward Margaret Purse said, the lawsuit was a victory for past, present, and future players. I really do think that the true power of this team doesn't come from the fact that we're able to accomplish change, but we're able to embolden others to pursue change. Yeah. It's, it's so evident that this progress is the result of women across generations. And soccer star Megan Rapino closed us out by saying their legal victory is just the start of a larger conversation about pay equity in this country. When we think of Billie Jean King and Venus and Serena Williams and um, WNBA players, obviously my partner Sue Bird and Neka Gumake, like all of these women are doing the same thing and then even go wider. If I'm seeing myself in, you know, union workers in Alabama and they're seeing themselves in us or our team, it's all kind of the same thing because we're all dealing with the same issues. So I think for us, the more we connect our stories, the more we literally connect with each other, the more that we can kind of draft off each other, I think the more successful that will be. And I know for us, you know, our lawsuit, it doesn't capture every single player and it doesn't capture every single woman in all of America. But it is something and it's our little part. And I think when you start to string together the idea that all of our equality, I mean, frankly, across the entire uh, spectrum of equality, but all of our liber liberation, all of our freedom, all of our worth is tied up in each other. Now we have a movement. Hey, Skim This listeners, I'm Bridget Armstrong, host of another Skim podcast you're going to want to queue up. It's called Pop Cultured with the Skim. And every Tuesday, we go deep on a culture story you need to know about. This week, we break down the situation with WNBA superstar Brittany Griner. She's currently being detained in Russia. We get into why she was there in the first place. Search for Pop Cultured with the Skim on whatever podcast app you love. If you're a fan of flashy reality shows about travel, we are heading to Iceland. Cheers to Greece! I think the only thing I'm going to really enjoy about you guys being in Cuba, I can have some peace and quiet. Or you're in need of some Real Housewives-worthy drama. I'm not talking to you. And I'm just Shut your f***ing mouth. I've had enough of you, you beast. We've got the show for you. Meet Drive to Survive. Okay, wait. A show about Formula One car racing? Hear us out. I knew sort of what Formula One was. It was in this hazy motorsport bubble alongside NASCAR. That's Carrie Batten, a staff writer for The New Yorker. She, like myself, hadn't really heard of Formula One racing and had very little desire to watch fancy cars go around a track. But then our Netflix algorithms got the best of us and we started to get hooked. First on the show, but then on the sport as a whole. Here's the deal. Formula One has been around since the 1950s, and the key difference between F1 and some other motorsports like NASCAR is the cars. They're lighter and faster. Cue some high-speed drama. What drew me in was this idea that this incredible sport and petri dish of drama was kind of hiding in plain sight. 
And Formula One is also a sport where the drama levels are high and the storylines are really easy to grasp because there are only 20 drivers, there are only 10 teams, and there are 20 races a year. So the competition is kind of laid bare all the time. There's not a million statistics to keep track of. Adding to that appeal is the eye candy. We're talking about the locations, of course. It's an incredibly glamorous sport because these drivers and these teams are flying between Monaco and Azerbaijan and Belgium and Switzerland. And they're all these very young, hot-blooded, often good-looking guys who are just in this intense pressure cooker all the time. So not only do they have competitive energy between them, they also have personal relationships with one another because a lot of these men have been racing together since they were two or three years old because that's the age at which you kind of take up the sport. We should point out, not everything about F1 is so glamorous. Because Formula One is super international, the sport has had its fair share of geopolitical tensions, too. Most recently, the son of a Russian oligarch got pulled out of his driver's seat for the season, and the league canceled the Russian race that was supposed to happen later this year. Batten told us that tension between money and morality adds more complexity to a show that might just seem like it's about shiny cars. The conflicts of interest between the sources of money and the drivers and the league is just, it's, it's so sticky. And I am not at all surprised that Formula One was just like, nope, we can't, we can't do this anymore. And we, we absolutely cannot host this race in Russia. But it's interesting because a lot, I've seen a lot of people argue that, okay, if you're not going to host the race in Russia, why do you still continue to host races in countries where human rights issues are still a big deal in various countries in the Middle East? There was a lot of protests around racing in Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia, these places. So I think it's really, it's really sticky. It's, it's just another layer of chaos within Formula One. If you're intrigued or you just need something to watch, you're in luck. The fourth season of Drive to Survive just dropped on Netflix, while the actual Formula One 2022 season starts this weekend. And no doubt, a lot more Americans will be tuning in to both the show and the races, all thanks to this docu-series. The viewership numbers have increased by something like 50%. So they've introduced this race in Miami that's already sold out, and they are thinking of very shortly following up with another race in Las Vegas. So there might be three races in, in the U.S. by the end of 2024, 2023. In fact, Formula One is so popular and growing in the U.S. that a lot of other sports franchises are saying, we want this Netflix treatment too. I think they're developing a similar series about the PGA Tour, which I believe is suffering. Golf is also a little bit difficult to get into. It's a little bit inaccessible. Tennis is kind of the same way. And I think if a sport is suffering and kind of in need of eyes, they're going to be all too happy to participate in the same sort of narrative content. I think Drive to Survive pulled it off and it's widely acknowledged in the league that they did a really good job. So I think with them setting an example, we're going to see this kind of thing a lot more. Honestly, it might take some convincing to get me to watch a reality show about golf. But as for this Formula One season, I'm already gearing up for race day. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston. We had additional help this week from Sajin Coriellis. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. 
And the Skims head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.